Hello and welcome to the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Brady, and I'm here today with Ray Isaac. Isaac Heating and Air Conditioning was founded by Ray Isaac's grandfather in 1945 and has grown to become one of the nation's largest privately held heating, ventilation, and air conditioning contractors, servicing more than 35,000 clients a year. Ray is one of four brothers who made up the third generation of Isaac Heating and Air Conditioning, and he currently serves as president and CEO. Ray is also president of the Small Business Council of Rochester and recently served as the campaign chair for the United Way. He holds a BS in management marketing from St. John Fisher College. Ray is a proud winner of the Rochester Small Business Person of the Year Award in 2012, and he'll soon be inducted along with his father in the Rochester Business Hall of Fame. Welcome, Ray. Thanks for coming. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So I, I guess, you know, the, the place that it makes the most sense to start is, is right at the beginning. I know that I actually, last time I was in your office, I saw that you had a whole kind of company history now, now into a book. So, so tell us a little bit about kind of the founding of, of Isaac Heating and Air Conditioning. Well, the, the original beginnings of it was my grandfather uh, started the business in 1945. He left his employer, and the story is that uh, the time that he started the business, he went in to tell my grandmother, who was in the hospital giving birth to, I think, child number five at that time, and told her that he was quitting his job and starting his own heating business. And it wasn't called Isaac Heating and Air Conditioning at that time. It was George T. Isaac Automatic Heating and Sheet Metal. And you right. think about it, automatic heating, it meant you didn't have to go downstairs and stoke a fire in the basement with coal or wood. It was automatic. You turn that little round thing on the wall they called the thermostat, and the heat came on. So he saw an opportunity to serve the new housing market that was in a boom really in Rochester and a lot of other areas because of the returning GIs from World War II. But uh, went in and started his own business, and it's probably a good thing that they kept the mothers in the hospital for a week back then when they gave birth because if she could have got out, she probably would have killed them. <laughs> imagine what any mother would do if your husband comes in and says, I'm quitting my job, honey, and I'm going to start my own heating business. Yeah. And with five, eventually eight mouths to feed, uh, kids, uh, my dad is one of eight children. And, uh, yeah, so they had, a, they had a pretty big family. Wow. Wow. Okay, so... We're, we're, we're coming along then, and, and then when your, when your father started to, to take over the business, how did they decide uh, who among those, among those eight was going to be the, the, the ones in the business or running the business? Well, and again, that's, that's a generational thing that every generation has sure. that, that thing to deal with, and we'll probably talk a little bit about that. But my dad had been in the business since pretty much since day one, right out of high school. He's the one that had been there. He had two younger brothers who were not yet ready to come into the business, and he had an older brother who actually worked for a competitor. And it happened that in 1967, actually January of 67, my grandfather passed away from complications from open heart surgery, really one of the first patients to have that type of surgery back then. And he uh, died from complications from that. And the business was kind of thrust upon my dad. They say, you know, some sometimes you know, men are thrust into great situations, sometimes greatness is thrust <laughs> onto them. And he was left with uh, figuring out how to, how to run a business, which was obviously a lot smaller then. But uh, he and then eventually his three brothers, so kind of ironic that I have three brothers that are equal partners with me. He also had three brothers that were equal partners with him in the business. And we had a couple aunts as well that worked there. My grandmother was still alive at that time. So it was really humble beginnings uh, in their, I think, their fourth location uh, from the first location in a probably an 80-square-foot garage over on Idlewood Lane in Irondequoit. And... We're at our, our one of our six locations now, which is uh, about 75,000 square feet. So I often say that my office is bigger than my grandfather's first total Isaac Heating and Air Conditioning oh, wow. location. Wow. 
And so then you're coming along and, and uh, you know, you not only do you have siblings, but also all of those other family members that were mm-hmm. in the business uh, that were your father's siblings and, mm-hmm. and maybe their, their kids. Um, was, was it an expectation that you were going to join the business? Uh, was it something you always had in mind or how did that come about? Well, that was, I guess, a blessing and a curse for my dad. We all loved the business, my brothers and I. We couldn't wait to get there. I quit football, I quit baseball, I quit wrestling. I was pretty good at all three of those because I wanted to work. And my brother Michael and I, my twin, we were the new homes department in high school. So our, wow. our junior years of high school, we would go to school after school. We would get out, we'd drive our cars to a job site and work until 6 or 7 o'clock doing new home systems and putting in heating and air conditioning systems and houses. And then post-graduation, I went to college and my brother went to trade school along with my other brothers, and uh, they all uh, pursued their passion, which was working in the field still. I still loved it. My dad kind of had to tear the tools out of my hands to <laughs> to bring me in the office. That and falling off three roofs kind of convinced him the only way it was going to keep me alive was to keep me in the office. Okay. So, yeah, so we, we all followed our passion, though, and that's the thing. And that's We still uh, preach that today, whether it be to family members or just employees. If if you're following your passion and if you love what you do, you're never going to work a day in your life. And I love what I do. I love coming in every single day. I love working on growing the business. I love dealing with the employees. I love dealing with the clients, which sometimes can be challenging. And all of my brothers, and I say it in a video that we have posted on our website, they'll all walk in my office and say, dude, I do not want your job <laughs> because they're happy doing what they're doing. And I love what I'm doing, which made it real easy. Yeah. So we had the passion. We knew what our skill sets were. And there's a lot that goes into that cultural creation and really designing a transition and a succession structure that is going to serve the business not the other way around. And that's, you know, we see ourselves as a true equity business where we exist to support the business first and foremost. And all my brothers see it the same way. Yeah, actually, I, I hadn't planned on talking about that quite yet. But okay, I, I we remember, can get to it. No, I remember reading about, uh, you wrote uh, an RBJ article mm-hmm. recently about yeah. kind of that equity versus the lifestyle business. So mm-hmm. for the listeners, can you just kind of talk a little bit about what you see as the, as the differences and you know why they should really decide between the two? Well, that's how you view your business and how you look at the business entity in itself. A lifestyle business, to start with that, is not what we are. There's nothing wrong with that, as I wrote in the article. It's a decision that the ownership has to make on whether they want a lifestyle business or not. And really, by definition, it's where the business exists, first and foremost, to support the lifestyle of the owner. The purpose of business, I think Keynesian Economics says that it is to increase shareholder equity. Okay, well, the business is there, and I want it to support my lifestyle and that of my family, and that's how it's going to be, and there's some telltale signs of it. First of all, everything that the owner has is pretty much run through the business. I mean, I think the word write-off was developed by a lifestyle business owner because they try to run everything through private parking spots, uh, luxury cars, and really, it's it's there to support their lifestyle. Uh, if you have children in the business, they usually have two initials after their last name. One's a V, the other one's a P. Um, the shop has toys in it, snowmobiles, jet skis, motorhomes, classic cars, things like that. And really, there's a lot of trappings of that. As I said, it's perfectly fine. That's not Isaac, though. We treat Isaac like it's General Electric. And that's where it comes into play where the ownership and employment then become very separated. 
I can own shares of General Electric. I can own more shares of General Electric than the CEO owns. I cannot walk in General Electric. I can't even get in the parking lot (laughs) and tell somebody what to do or fire somebody. I can vote my shares at a shareholder meeting or by proxy, but I can't go in there and tell somebody what to do. And that's how we run Isaac, even though my brothers own equal shares with me. But I have have been giving the, the duty, the responsibility, and that office to run the business and grow the business. And and we all respect that. My dad said, you know, the three hardcore rules. And I said in the, the article, you get paid for what you do, not for who you are. So I'm paid as a CEO. My brother, David, is paid as a service technician. That's what he wants to do. Mm. Your last name's a responsibility. It's not a privilege. And that's the big one where a lot of times the lifestyle business, the problem there is you come in with the same last name as the business and you actually think it means something. Let me tell you something. To every other employee in that company, it really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and my dad actually practiced reverse nepotism, where we had to work harder, mm-hmm. longer, smarter. I mean, and we call it the the subgrunt level. And, and in construction, you have you have subgrunt, grunt, helper, apprentice, mechanic, and you work up. We were subgrunt. We were actually below the grunt. So if there was a small enough hole to crawl in, my dad was very <laughs> smart to put us in that hole because he said, you're not going to get respect by your last name. It's going to be something that you have to earn. And then his last one was that if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. So it kind of made it easy. He said, look, guys, you can come in, but you better have a passion and a purpose for it. And we all do. We, we still love it. I was with my brother, Kenny, my oldest brother, just about a half hour ago, he was cutting up some scrap in the back of the shop. That's, you know, that's what he does. But he's also there at 4 o'clock in the morning plowing snow. And he's down fixing parking lots and garage doors and fixing a guy's van. I was walking somebody through the building the other day, a new employee. And he said to me, he says, I know what you do, obviously. He says, what do your brothers do? And I was talking about my brother David as a service tech, my brother Michael as our head of our uh, uh, purchasing department and also sells some uh, commercial jobs. And at that point in time, we were walking through the shop, my brother Kenny is lying underneath one of our vans changing the disc brakes. And I told him, I said, and one of my brothers is changing the disc brakes on a Chevy van right now. And the kid looked at me, he looked at me, he says, you got to be kidding me. I said, nope. I said, say hi, Ken. He, <laughs> he looks from upside down, lying on his back. Hey, guys. But you know what? That's It sets the tone in the organization because if we can be happy changing disc brakes on a van, even though you own the place, then other people can fulfill their passions there and it doesn't necessarily have to be heating and air conditioning. I don't expect somebody to be passionate about heating and air conditioning to be an employee, even a service tech. I tell them after our, our training, our boot camp program, I go right in there in the second week and say, look, if at this point you're not passionate about heating and air conditioning, and I pause because I know what's going through their mind. Maybe they would expect somebody, you need to leave. I'm like, I'm perfectly fine with that because I tell them I'm not passionate about heating and air conditioning. I love it, great business, but that's not my passion, and it doesn't have to be yours. You can find your passion through heating and air conditioning. It's Simon Sinek's uh, golden circle, the what, the how, and the why. Mm-hmm. The what and the how are just a means to maybe achieving that why. Beautiful. Well, I see. It's funny. I see a lot of parallels between kind of the story that you're sharing and a little bit of, of our own story at, at Accelerate. Mm-hmm. You know, 
both the origin story of my dad starting kind of on a whim. He had uh, my, my two older sisters were in high school, you know, with college bills looming. I was seven and he, he up and quit a, a pretty stable job to, to, to get started. And then similarly around, around your third principle of, you know, never working a day in your life, uh, you know, when you're, when you're enjoying what you're doing. And, uh, and also a little bit of the uh, questionable child labor laws in terms of, in terms of doing some work growing up uh, that, that may or may not be kosher. But, uh. Oh, my dad always said, if somebody asks how old you are, you tell them you're 18. <laughs> I, we'd have superintendents on jobs. We'd be out there working. And a superintendent come up to me one day and hand me the keys to one of the trucks. He says, I need you to go pick this up at the supply house and, and, and come back here, you know, and uh, this is where you're going to get it. And I gave him this dumbfounded look. And, I, and he's like, what's wrong? I said, um, I can't drive. What do you mean you can't drive? You don't have a license? I'm like, yeah, I'm 14. <laughs> and I'm on a job site. Why don't you tell me that? I said, I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> but, you know, we loved it. We couldn't wait, as I said. I mean, to quit a sport that you love, to go to work. I mean, we loved it. I mean, we loved the money. And, you know, you always get that in, in the school. Hey, daddy bought you a car. Yeah, he let me come to work every single day and work almost 40 hours a week while I'm in school and earn money and buy my own car. Yeah, he, he kind of bought me a car. Yeah. He gave me the opportunity and he allowed us to do the rest. So once uh, once things had been decided, then I guess in terms of uh, you kind of were more on this on this management track. You know, a couple of your brothers and, and other family members were on, were on different tracks. What was the what was the succession plan like? Was, was there any ways that uh, you know your father tried to help you prepare, or are you just you know you know yourself tried to help get ready for for this transition? And and was there a lot of that that difficulty in terms of other folks around the company kind of wondering whether or not you uh, deserved it or earned it? Oh yeah, yeah, that, and that's going to happen by nature. Um, you're going to have employees that are used to the lifestyle mentality. We have employees still that come from businesses that they work for and companies they work for that were owned by families that practice lifestyle business. And we have to, we have to deprogram them from that and, and teach them that, look, we run this place like it, as I said, like it's General Electric. But I saw my dad's hand in things early on. I recognize it now where I remember graduating from college. I was uh, doing some other uh, jobs in the business. I was managing our inventory in the fleet and things like that. And I remember going to my dad one day and said, Dad, you know what? I think I'd like to go into sales because I saw what our salespeople had. I mean, we have had years in the company where our top salesperson made more than the owners combined. Wow. And that was his philosophy. Don't Never screw with the paycheck, to put it mildly. Um, and if the salesperson does their job and earns a great living and the company just didn't do well that year and we're paid pretty much at the end of the year based on how well we did, the salesman's paid on his rules of engagement. He played the, he, he played the game, if you will. Sure. He should get paid by that. So, you know, you're, you're always going to have to deprogram people from, you know, that thought process of, you know, coming in as a lifestyle business. But I could see my dad's hand in things because I told him I want to go into sales because I saw the lifestyle they had. I was like, man, this is pretty neat. And I remember saying, he says, that's nice. We have other plans for you. Hmm. And he gave me one of the worst jobs in the company with the department that was losing the most money in the department that was shrinking in size. Everybody was unhappy. And he threw his son into it. I said, you know, the old biblical verse of lay your Isaac on the altar. I'm like, geez, he took this literally <laughs> and put me into that position. And I was able to prove myself. I was able to turn it around and, and learn a lot of lessons. And I learned those lessons not from my dad, so to speak. I learned it from the employees in that department because I'd try pulling stuff. 
actually telling somebody to do something and telling them I want them to do it and they should do it because my last name is Isaac and looking at the look on their face, meaning that I don't care. I don't care who you are. I'm not doing that. And so that you don't get that respect just because your last name is on the business. It's it's something you have to earn. So that was a, a real learning experience. For six years I was in that job and I couldn't wait to get out of it. But uh, I remember my dad sending me in and speaking with these consultants and them interviewing me on all these leadership-type questions, even though I didn't recognize those at that time. And they did a survey of the employees in the company saying, who do you think should be the future leader of the organization? Oh, wow. Very – my dad's – and he's still with us, uh, fortunately. So you know, I, I get to share these stories with him and say, I knew what you were up to. That was pretty, pretty neat how you did that. You know, and now you recognize you become older and you get a little bit of wisdom. And I saw what he was doing and trying to craft a good succession because he knew that the employees had to be bought in. But I was a complete jerk, though. I really was. Early years, oh, my gosh. I mean, I have this vein that when I'm stressed and angry and anxious, that pops out on the side of my head. And I found out, literally, they had a bet going on in the back shop of when I was going to have my first aneurysm. I mean, it's like, it's like, geez, the kid's going to pop. And it took time and mellowing and learning and, and just uh, going through the processes to, to realize that it's okay to not be perfect. I mean, if you talk about, I'm a student of leadership, so when you talk about leadership, you got to be comfortable in your own skin. I was not comfortable in my own skin. Whenever you tell somebody they have to do something because your last name is Isaac or because you're the boss, my dad always said, if you have to remind somebody you're the boss, you lost. You should never have to remind yeah. somebody you're the boss or remind them that your last name's Isaac or the only reason they should do something is because of those two things. He says, you've lost at that point. They're not going to do it. And if they do it, there's not going to be buy-in. You're either all in or you're in the way. They're going to be in the way eventually. So it took time to, to gain that and be comfortable in my own skin, be comfortable with being a screw-up, be comfortable with not knowing all the answers. A lot of a lot of classes and seminars and going through the John Engels Advanced Leadership Competence Program and a graduate of that and just those little steps along the way. And you look back now and go, yeah, you know, that, that was a, a turning point in my life. And I'm still doing it. I'm still learning. I still sit back after a conversation and go, that stunk. Man, I did not do well in that. But having that awareness is something I think that just takes time. The funny thing is we have some younger employees, some younger leaders in the organization that I wish I had what they had at their age. Mm. They get it. They're brilliant. Um, and that's the reason for our success is we've just been able to surround ourselves with young and young-minded. I mean, and we just retired uh, three people from the company of the average of 35 years with us. So heating wow. and air conditioning business, and you got people that stick around for 35 years, so that's we must have done something right. But just seeing what they know and, and listening to them is, I don't know, it's very encouraging. That's my why. Yeah. That's my why. When I come in every day, I love that, like offering somebody an opportunity to improve their quality of life. Yeah, and it wouldn't matter what you're, what you're selling. It's no, about, it's it doesn't about matter. The people and the, the, the lives that you're changing, and That's I love exactly that. exactly it. So I, I'm thinking, I, I had actually read back in the archives uh, about that, that vein story, yeah. uh, and, and I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm, I'm glad that nah, you did. It's, you know, <laughs> it's part of being uh, comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, yeah, I was no, a I mess. It. I was a jerk. <laughs> So you, you mentioned a few of the experiences that you had been through. You've, you've already talked about a couple of the, the, the books that you've enjoyed. But if you were looking back maybe to, to young people who have a, have a vein or, or that meta, metaphorical vein, uh, you know, either in your company or just listeners that we have, 
What might you recommend uh, in terms of some experiences to kind of help evolve their their leadership consciousness? Well, the, the first one really is those steps of um, of leadership. <clears throat> Excuse me, love leadership is being comfortable with who you are. You got to be you, before you can lead anybody else. You got to learn to lead one person, and that's yourself. And you got to be okay with yourself. And you look at Jim Collins with the window in the mirror of a level five leader looking out the window to give credit looking in the mirror to take blame, not taking a failure as a direct reflection on your self-worth as a person and not taking a victory as a reflection on your self-worth as a person. And being able to be okay with accepting a compliment but also accepting criticism. And it still hurts. I mean, you never get to a point where somebody says, you stink, and that I'm talking in a physical sense, but in (laughs) in your performance sense, that still hurts. And believe me, it, it's uh, when we make mistakes, um, I'm the one that has to take the ultimate responsibility and accountability of it. I mean, I, I learned from a buddy of mine a long time ago. He says there's a big difference between responsibility and accountability, and people try to use them interchangeably. Responsibility is where you know the team loses. Everybody is responsible. The, the offense, the defense, the, the coaching, the trainers, everybody. But there's only one person who's accountable. He says, when you get to a point in your life where you are willing to accept that accountability, then you've made a, a, a step in the right direction, you know, where you're able to be accountable for anything that happens and be okay. And you know what? Get up the next morning and try to do better. I mean, John Angles uh, in his program, he says, you know what? We'd all be a lot better if we all realized and took the opinion that everybody is just trying to do the best they can. And I, that's, a, that's a new thing I've learned just this past year. It was a retreat I went through uh, with him back in January. And that one statement is the one thing I remember from that whole program was that everybody's just trying to do the best they can. And it, it, that takes the anxiety out of situations. When if, if it's an employee or just a person on the street, we're all just trying to do the best we can. We can. Um, nobody's been reincarnated that I've ever met that can – tell me what their previous life was. So we all have one chance to do things right. Uh, and when I say do things right, not being perfect, but being okay with who you are in life and being happy. And you can't believe how many business owners out there don't like their own business. Mm. I, when I do my, I do some public speaking and I do seminars and keynote speeches. And I did a, uh, a keynote speech down in Fort Worth, Texas this year, and I had about 350 business owners in the room. And I asked them, are you all owners or managers? Yeah. Are you, anybody here been reincarnated? Well, you always get one wise guy or another that'll answer yes. But I said, no. I said, all right, close your eyes and answer this question by raising your hand. I said, how many of you in here love going to work every single day? No matter what day it is or what time of the day it is, how many of you love going to work every single day? And there's 350 people in the room. 10 hands went up. And these people had their eyes closed. So I said, just close your eyes and raise your hands to the answer to this. And I said, okay, leave your hands up and open your eyes. My hand was one of them up on, up on the stage. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, that's pitiful. I said, you have a choice to do whatever you want to do. You go in every day and you're not happy doing what you're doing. I said, and what do you want from your employees? You want them to walk in every day with bells on, smiling, laughing, enjoying what they do, loving the company, loving every minute of their engagement there. You know, there's another name for it. It's called hypocrite. And you're here, you are not happy to go on yourself. And we've seen it. We've seen those bosses from hell that walk in. They don't say hi to anybody. They go in their office and they shut the door. And what's that telling the rest of the employees? Well, if the owner doesn't like this place, how much am I supposed to like it? 
and he has a choice to do whatever he wants to do. And, you know, there's other things in life that you should be miserable about. Is it? it shouldn't be something you choose to do. And that's kind of my, if it's a, a, man, a ministry or a mission, when I do these keynote speeches, I mean, that's what I talk about. I've gotten to that point, I think, in my understanding of myself and, and people in life that don't be miserable doing what you're doing. You only got one chance. I mean, something to be miserable about. And I usually close my keynote with a story about one of our employees whose little daughter has had a uh, brain tumor uh, wrapped around her brain stem and had to go through aggressive chemotherapy. And I show a picture of Beatrice, and we call her B, and she's holding her little baby brother in a hospital bed. And I said, this is Beatrice. This is her brother, Seth Peregrine. I said, you know, Beatrice uh, is very happy, isn't she? She's smiling, isn't she? Yeah. I said, she's smiling. She's probably holding her baby brother here, right? Yeah. I said, does anybody know what the word Peregrine stands for? I said, and it's not a falcon. I said, it's the patron saint of cancer patients. I said, why did mom and dad name him Seth Peregrine? I said, because guess who has cancer? I said, Beatrice. I said, and she's in the beginning stages of undergoing aggressive chemotherapy where it, she lost half her body weight. Mm. And I close with this, this story because I said, here you are making a choice to do something and you're not smiling. I said, what is Beatrice doing in this picture? She's smiling and she's literally in the fight of her life and she has no choice and she's smiling and you go in every day, miserable. I said, you better get your head straight. I said, because you're affecting and infecting everybody else in your organization. And, and I, it, it, hopefully it creates some understanding and, and makes people at least think about things a little bit differently. Because I say at the beginning, look, I don't want applause, I want a pause. Usually it's a good thing that I don't request or even require <laughs> applause because I don't get it. But I want you to think at the end of this. I want you to think about it because when it comes down to it, what are we all doing? What are we all doing? You know, it's, I do heating and air conditioning. I became happiest when I realized that that wasn't my why. That was my happiest day. I said, you know what? Because I was meeting with a recruiter. I had my resume out there. And we, you know the recruiter and an individual in Rochester. And I had my resume with him. And he says, you know, Ray, what do you want to do? And I told him all these great things. I want to do this with a business. And I want to do that with a business. And, and he says, oh, okay. He says, I can get you a job tomorrow. He says, you know, stock options and all that. He, but he stopped me. He says, um, you got to come back tomorrow and tell me if this is what you really want to do. I said, no, no, it's really what I want to do. He says, well, if that's the case, why don't you do it at Isaac? Hmm. And I stopped me. I was like, that was my epiphany of, wait a second. I've been focusing on the what and the how myself. I didn't even think about a why. Okay, I'll just make heating and air conditioning the means to my end. And it really is to create a, improve the quality of life. I mean, when somebody comes in, in a, and I've had five of them this year, employees that have come in and said, hey, Ray, just want to thank your brothers and your family and you. I just qualified and bought my first house. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? That's pretty cool. Thank you for sharing. They know now that that is my why. Because I get up in front of all my employees and say, it's only heating and air conditioning people. We're not creating world peace here. So... Let's not take ourselves too seriously. Well, I don't know. People at a comfortable temperature, they, they're a little less angry, Well, it, in these last, this last week and a half, it wasn't just heating and air conditioning. It, it was life or death for some people, and literally. I mean, if uh, it gets up to 90 or 100 people with asthma and, and heart problems, yeah. But to put it in the right frame, you know, it's, we're not solving world hunger. You know, if, if, and if you are passionate about the industry and the trade, that's fantastic. But I don't want you being miserable doing it, especially if you think you have to be passionate about it. There's a lot of different stages of that thought process. Uh, I want you to be happy doing what you're doing. And if you love bass fishing and this job and this career, 
allows you to get out at two o'clock in the afternoon or come in at two o'clock in the afternoon because you're on that shift and you get the bass fish every morning. And that's your why. I'm the first person to hug you and congratulate you because that is that's that helps me achieve my why. So from that, you know, you have this kind of personal epiphany. Um, how do you start to inject that into your culture? Because I know that you kind of that employee fulfillment is really important. Uh, I know that you kind of have always had these these family values, but was there a point at which you decided to articulate them? I know you've got them on, on your website. You know, how do you how do you start to actually bring this this spirit and this ethos into your your day to day operations? Yeah, that's a great question because it, it is a process. It's still a process. Um, we kind of re-engineered the company back in two thousand five. We we did away with our vision statement, which really wasn't a vision because I had to look in my desk drawer to find our vision. It was funny. I was meeting with a consultant. He said, what's your vision, Ray? And I'm digging through my desk drawer. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to find our vision. He's like, <laughs> stop and listen to what you just said. He says, that's messed up. He says, you're blind. So what do you want the vision to be? And we came up with our vision statement, which has nothing to do with heating and air conditioning. It has nothing to do with being a premier, whatever. It has nothing to do with taking the world by storm. I mean, the first sentence is uh, create an enjoyable experience met with anticipation. Have fun, enjoy it, and it concludes and improve the quality of life. So it tells a story about that. So that was really the first step. And it had to be my vision. He forced me to write that because he said, if you're not bought into it, you're not going to serve it and you're not going to tell the story, and you're not going to be a supporter of it. So we um, we went through a process of that and then identifying what our core values were. We've changed those. We've realigned those. We used to have different core values, excellence, outstanding service. We found ourselves in the same trap of going with all the buzzwords. Now our core values are uncompromising integrity, safety, community, family, continuous improvement, and fun. A core value of fun, and it goes right to that core of, look, if we're not having fun or if you're not having fun, find something else to do, whether it's in the company or outside the company. We're okay with that. I mean, I would never want somebody being there if they're miserable. So that was part of the process, setting out your rank order priorities, where we really set that stage where safety is first, then the employee, then the client. And we thought the clients would be put off by that or or turned off because of it. That, well, you put your employee before you put us. Yes, because the last thing I want is somebody in somebody's home or business that isn't happy, isn't taken care of, and isn't seen as a priority. Because if they're not seen as priority, you're not going to be seen as priority. It's a pay-it-forward mentality. Look, I'm going to make it safe. I'm going to take care of you. Guess what? At that point, you're going to take care of the client, and then the client is going to take care of the company. So the company comes last. And when I talk about this, I did it in orientation a couple of weeks ago, and that's part of the process. I meet with every new employee. I do it in the groups of orientation. We had seven or eight of them in our new employee orientation, and I spent about an hour and a half with them talking about this, talking about passion, talking about the why, telling them that I'm not passionate about heating and air conditioning, tell them it's okay mm. if they're not in that process of really re reaffirming those core values and, and tell them, look, I want to take care of you. And you're going to take care of the client. Client's going to take care of the company. One of the guys in the orientation said, "You know what? Most companies flip that over. It's company, client, employee, safety." I said, "No, nope, we we do it the other way. So we try to pay it forward." And what I call R and D, not research and development, but Rob and duplicate. And we stole that from a very great employer in Rochester, who is uh, well known and one of the top employers in the whole country. And that's Wegmans. They put their employee first. They're not going to beat up an employee mentally, emotionally, hopefully not physically, for taking care of a client. 
because the employee knows that they have their back. And it's, it's a great philosophy because when we go out to somebody's home, who's Isaac eating an air conditioner? It's not the short, old, ugly guy on TV. It's the, <laughs> it's the service technician. They are right. Isaac. And I tell them that. Look, you're Isaac eating an air conditioning more on your very first day working for it. You are the company more to a client than I am. And you're also going to make the company more money in your first hour on the job than I've made us in the last 20 years. Because you're, you're selling, you're installing, you're servicing, you're taking care of clients. You're making us more money than I am. I'm the pure definition of overhead. And that's, again, that's being okay with saying that and being comfortable. And it's funny how employees are gravitating to that. And we've grown our company, even in a workforce, uh, in, in a population now where you know there's more openings and there are people to fill them. And we hired 17 people for our next Isaac University boot camp last week. And we hired another nine for another boot camp that we're doing. So we got two of them going. We hired 26 people of probably the best people I've ever met to be employees. And they keep getting better and better. And we brought in, you know, 20-something people in one fell swoop to start with the company. And we're finding that they're subscribing to that. Because they'll, they'll look at me and say, you know what? I never even thought about heating and air conditioning. And you know what? It's great stuff. I love it. This is a great industry and career, but I'm having fun. I'm enjoying this. And you know what? That puts a smile on my face because that's what it's all about. You know, dealing with a little child that has brain cancer is something that you should be miserable about, not what you choose to do every day. Hmm. So that's kind of my... I don't know. It's kind of my ministry now. Yeah, no, I love it. So yeah. I, I, I guess you mentioned uh, Isaac University, and, and I, I know that I was reading an article about it from from relatively recently, where you're talking about kind of you know the thirty percent graduation rate in the city schools, and trying to find some kind of hot button to give them hope, uh, and 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 also that just because they're not going to college, it doesn't mean you know they can't have a career and a, and a successful one. Mm-hmm. So so tell us a little bit about kind of the founding of Isaac University and and what you're what you're working on now. Yeah, the uh, the foundation of it started about well, it started when the company started. My grandfather was was really keen on learning and education and continuous improvement. He he was a great mentor from my dad's stories. I was only I was less than a year old when he passed away. Unfortunately, I wish I would have known him, but uh, he uh, he was big on that. My dad was always big on that. He. He would always take the time to show people how to do things. And we were five years old. We were going out on service calls with him. He'd give us a, you know, a quarter or something to hold the flashlight, which is probably not the best idea, given a, a five or six year old a flashlight in a dark basement, <laughs> and you know we're making angels and the you know and, and you know little uh, you know bats and stuff uh, with our hands. And my dad's yelling at us to hold the flashlight on what he was doing. But he was was really a, a core to that training and education component. 22 years ago, we started Isaac University, and we did it because I don't know if we weren't happy with what we were seeing coming to us from some of the trade schools, but we just wanted to run our own thing. We're kind of control freaks when it comes down to it, and we wanted to control the the end product because we would find that we'd get somebody from another school, and we'd have to go through everything again. And if you relied on your manufacturers, manufacturers have a tendency to run training counter-cyclical or counter-seasonal where they would run a boiler training class where a heating system boiler training class in April or May. Well, chances are the person that is going through this class may not see one of these for another four months. Mm. So let's let's be seasonal. Yeah, but we decided to run our own program and we got accreditation. We just got renewed last week on our accreditation. So we're um, working at that. We just got approved to be a uh, New York State apprenticeship 
uh, program, which is not easy to do. We're one of the only accredited programs uh, through the accreditation body in the country that's held by a contractor. We're actually the only accredited program okay. held by a contractor. This is a accreditation that's held for colleges and universities and trade schools, and we're the only contractor that has that. And it's, it's grown over the years. To say that we had this huge plan up front, it's kind of like, you know, let's run some classes. But we put our minds behind it. We put our effort behind it. We put our finances behind it. And we've invested heavily. I mean, we spent almost a million dollars last year just in training wages for our employees. That's not burdened. That's If they made 20 bucks an hour, that's 20 bucks an hour without any burden on it. Mm. So close to a million dollars in just wages. And fast forward to right now, we have a couple of programs. We, we run, I mentioned our boot camp. Boot camp is a 12-week paid Training and education. You notice I always say training and education. You train somebody what to do and how to do it. You educate them on why. I think the true definition of a professional operating in a career is that education component. You understand the theoretical part. But we run that boot camp. It's 12 weeks paid. We hire somebody as a student. And as I said, we got almost 26 people starting as paid students. I think that's more and it's larger than the entering uh, class of any one of the colleges for heating and air conditioning. And we're going to be running them through anywhere from a six to a 12-week program. One of them is a little bit of an abridged program because we're going to accelerate it a little to get us ready for for the fall season. But it's paid education where every single day they come in, they're a student. I just left them. They they were in our lab uh, going through uh, some of the air conditioning and heating basics and and we grow them to a point where when they graduate from Isaac University, they are in a truck. And they're a trained and educated professional. I often tell them that, look, in the first six weeks at Isaac, you're going to have more formalized education, meaning in the classroom, theoretical, textbooks, tests, quizzes, hands-on, lab study, than most of our competitors' employees will have in a full lifetime. And you think about it, 12 weeks at 40 hours, that's 480 hours. They're going to have that in their first six weeks mm. or 12 weeks' time. Paid education. So most employees at competitors, and not that it's wrong, but they might get a couple hours a year if they're lucky. Right. And we're changing the program now. Um, we're doing these little uh, these little programs. We also have a four-year accredited program that we run on a regular basis that is all different uh, curriculums. I think we have 26 or 27 different modules, everything from hydronics to gas heat to heat pumps to oil systems to pneumatics to controls to electrical. So we have all those in-house, and we run that program on a regular basis. Our lab is 1,500 square feet. That's going to be changing. Uh, We've now leased out a building, um, and we're in the process of building that out. It's 30,000 square feet, 10,000 square feet of classroom, seven fully functioning classrooms mm. holding anywhere from 12 to 15 students, which is optimal class side. And we have one room that's a larger size that holds about 80 or 90 people. Uh, that's just for if we want to use it for meetings. And we're creating our pretty much our own trade school of all different trades. And we have a partner that's coming in with us on that that is going to be handling a couple of the other disciplines. But I can't advertise who that is yet until we get everything worked out. But it's... Uh, it's going to be a pretty neat program, and we're proud of that. We're, we're investing heavily. It's going to be about you know, a million dollars of investment in, out of our pockets to invest back into. And it's not just our people. We're looking at educating for some of the uh, local schools oh, uh, and running their heating and air conditioning because I really want to offer that hope 
that these kids in high school that have been told unless they go to college, they're not going to amount to anything. You know what? I got service techs, and I'm not saying this boastfully. I'm saying this to prove a point that we have service techs that are making twice what these individuals are, who are telling these kids they're not going to amount to anything are making. <laughs> and they have a master's degree. Not that it's bad. I'd never talk anybody out of going to college. I mean, that's great, but we probably have two dozen to three dozen employees that work for us that have a bachelor's or higher degree that are service technicians. Wow. Because they focused on the what and the how. They were good at math, so they went and got a financial management degree. And they hated every minute of it because they didn't have a why, and it wasn't what they wanted to do, and now they're working in the field being a service tech. So this new program, though, is going to be very structured, and we're going to be we're actually going to be educating on all the trades. And we've changed the name of it. It's now called iTech, uh, Isaac Technical. And it's going to be held at a facility that we're calling iTech, Isaac Training and Education Center. So we're, uh, it's the same ITEC. You know, we're heating guys. We keep things simple. So, you know, I don't like too many acronyms. But um, it's, uh, we're proud of that program. And it's, it's kind of a little bit of a give back to the community. And to give, as he said, hope is really the reason why a lot of these kids don't graduate because they're told that their whole life, unless you go to college, you're not going to amount to anything. Well, I have no desire. I have no means. I have no intentions of going to college. I guess I'm going to just drop out and go find something else to do. I'll just go get a job. And they never really even think about that career component. And we can give them a reason to stay in high school, graduate, come to our program, Isaac, and not only come to our program and get a great education, but we can then possibly get them their associate's degree and even higher because our program accounts for 18 credit hours at MCC for your heating and air conditioning degree. So here you got a, a kid, if you take this full picture, somebody that wasn't going to graduate because they're going to drop out, giving them hope to stay in school, graduate, come to our program, 18 credit hours now applies to their associate's degree, getting their associate's degree, deciding that, you know what, I can be pretty good at this and I found a, a passion that I like, maybe go get my engineering degree. So here they go from dropout to a bachelor's or higher master's degree holding individual. Hmm. That's pretty neat. That, that's incredible, Ray. I, I'm, you know, it's interesting as you're, as you're talking about kind of this, this vision that you have and, and how it's a little bit of a, of a community give back, uh, but, but you're also kind of going, going through and, and I'm thinking about how, you know, you, you've, you've quoted several times before how, I don't know what the exact statistic is, but that the third generation of, of a family business rare, rarely makes it. Uh, and, and not only are you making it, but you know they don't give the, the small business person of the year and the, and the Rochester Business Hall of Fame for just, for just mm-hmm. sustaining. You know, there, there's, there's an element of both that, that culture and, uh, that, you're, that you've created both inside your company and how it emanates outside into the community. And then there's the, the growth. And I think, the, I think that, that that conscious capitalism is really what it's all about is that the culture and the growth are, are reinforcing of each other. Um, and, and obviously, it's really easy to measure uh, the, the, the profits and the, and the numbers side of it. But I'm wondering what other tools that you use to measure kind of the, the culture and the community impact and some of the other things, because I think it's important to have those things on your dashboard as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we technically we tithe as an organization. Um, we, we figure in what we're going to give and we budget and we always double the, the budget. And I, my CFO goes nuts because we're always over our budget on, on those things. But we decide what we're going to give before we even earn dollar number one for the year. Our charities that we support and the initiatives we support get paid before the owners do. 
And we've always taken that initiative. My dad, he built 120 Habitat for Humanity homes over 20 years. And I'm talking built in in, in the basement, putting the heating systems in, (laughs) driving my mother nuts because sometimes they build those homes to revitalize areas of the city that are not vibrant yet and still maybe a little bit unsafe. And here he is at 7 o'clock at night in the middle of the winter in a basement in a house putting a heating system in. And, uh, you know, that... that, uh, that was something that was in, uh, ingrained in us long ago is that you can have anything you want in life as long as you help enough other people get what they want or need first. And by giving back and paying it forward, it, it, it adds meaning to what you do as a company. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you based. Uh, the profit is very important. Again, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I'm, uh, I like making money. But if you can share that and you can support the community, and we have a duty to support the community. We're a local business. We deal with people that live in Rochester or Buffalo or Syracuse where we have our branches or Corning. If that community is not healthy, guess what? We're not going to be in a great place either. So we need to have a healthy, vibrant community to help our business be healthy and vibrant. I, if I had a choice of starting a business, do I want to start it in, I don't know, Charlotte, North Carolina, or Detroit, Michigan, nothing wrong with Detroit. What would most people say? Well, I'm going to start it in Charlotte. Why? Because Charlotte is a vibrant, growing community. It doesn't have half the buildings boarded up. And I got a buddy that has a business in Detroit and does very well, but we need a vibrant community, and that's probably the reason why I like to give back and and support the community initiatives and our corporate social responsibility initiative to making sure that we're taking care of it. And you know what? It's funny. You can't put a number on it, but the cultural impact in the organization. And sometimes, if nothing else, you're going to get a pass for some because, you know what, you're, doing, you're trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And whether it be from a client or a community or a regulatory agency, who knows? I mean, if, if somebody has a soft spot in their heart for you know, people that are trying to do the right thing, that just validates that you are trying to do the right thing. You don't do it for those reasons. My dad always said that, look, you, know, you give in private. If somebody notices, nice. If nobody notices, even better. And that's how you need to approach those types of things is to, is to you know, give quietly and support the community and support the people in it. And a lot of times our employees are part of that community that we're supporting. Sure. We see it all the time. The stories come back that, hey, you sponsored this. Well, my son has cerebral palsy. You know, thank you for sponsoring that. And this is from an employee that I didn't even know had that type of a situation at home. And I should have known that, but little things like that. It could be a Little League game. You, you sponsored the Little League. You know, I'm at our St. Rita's Fiesta. I'm a parishioner out at St. Rita's, and I'm standing in line to get ice cream. And I heard a lady behind me with her young daughter saying, you know, say hi, say hi. hi, to us. <laughs> she says, this is Mr. Isaac. He, his company makes it possible for you to go here. I'm like, whoa, no, time. I said, no, we, we support the Fiesta, and it's a great church, and it's a great organization. But... You know, there's a lot of other people that are making it possible for you to, you know, to you to go to school here. We just try to do our part, but people, you know, they realize that, you know, and that, that's, it's heartwarming. You, know, you always give for the right reasons. And as I said, if nobody notices, that's even better. You know, you know, in your heart, you did it. And that, these are all, as you know, Andrew, you're, you're a student of these things. These are all full circle things that are all inclusive. There, nothing stands on its own. It's not in a vacuum that, you know, you're, if you're comfortable in your own skin, you're okay with just doing things quietly. And there's so many great people in Rochester that, that do that. And you see their names on buildings, you know, the Vic Salernos and the, and, um, 
you know, Phil Saunders and Tom Gelisano and all them, but there's so much that they do that there isn't a name on a building. And the in the smaller organizations and the things that they do as well, um, we're in a great community. I mean, we, you know, you're the average of the five people you spend your most time with. Amen. We, we have pretty good average in Rochester. I mean, it's we're better because of the people and even our competitors. We have great competitors. I mean, our our peers in other areas would die to have our competition. Might sound a little funny, but they keep the bar high. I'm not competing on on a job with somebody who isn't offering benefits and training and education. Yeah, they may not do what we're doing, but they're all doing that, and they're great competition. So I don't have to worry about that element. Everybody's at the same level on the tide. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think then? Because because people might be watching, you know, a, a company like yourself with this this dual culture uh, focus, but also the, this, you know, growth of the bottom line. And, and I think that's really one of the, one of the most exciting pieces about conscious capitalism it, is that those things can be self-reinforcing, mm-hmm. but what is it that you think uh, keeps more businesses from, from moving in that direction or having that kind of, kind of ethos? Is there, do you run up against other fellow business owners who are, you know, purely bottom line driven? Is there anything that you'd say to try to convince them or, or how do you, what, what do you think holds us back from getting that to, to go to the next level? Yeah, great question. Um, I think it's that mindset. I forgot who it was that said, uh, you know, men or women who focus on small things are usually incapable of achieving great things. And sometimes that small thing is, <laughs> it ends up being self-fulfilling of the bottom line. If all you're focusing on is on the bottom line, and there are people that do it. I have friends that that's their business. They just look at the profit. You ask them to support something. They they haven't they haven't drank the Kool Aid yet. They haven't bought into it, and they may not. Uh, luckily, unfortunately for me, the people I spend a lot of time with are are of the opposite mindset, where they realize that we only live once. We can help others. We can still have anything we want. And I, I really truly believe that you can have anything you want. Is if you're helping other people get things. We have individuals, and I used to look at my dad kind of weird. We'd have a, a person, and it's not just the charitable stuff. It's how you run your business. I'd have employees that came in and were telling us they're going to start their own business to be a competitor. And you know what? I still am okay with that and embrace that. That's what my grandfather did 75 years ago. I'd be a hypocrite to tell him no. I mean, my dad always said, look, you know, it should be your goal when you hire somebody to have them want to start their own business. It should also be our goal to prove to them it isn't worth our while. <laughs> we can provide them with a better living. And my dad would bring these people in and teach them how to read a financial statement, how to set up a budget, how to price a job. He says, the last thing I want you to do is going out there and screwing up the whole market. So let me at least show you how to price a job. And I, I will do that as well. You know, how do you figure out overhead? What's your break even? How do you, what's the difference between gross profit and net profit? Most people confuse the two. And that's, in my way, uh, I think that's also conscious capitalism and, and making sure that you're, you're giving back in a lot of different ways. It's not just writing a check. I mean, as I say, a charity, and I said this when I was chair of United Way, I said the easiest thing you can do is write a check because that's just giving of your treasure, giving of your time and your talent. That's really where, and you are a shining example of that. So congratulations. I mean, your time and your talent that you give to different organizations and different initiatives is is noticed, and it's noticed in the community. And younger, than, you're probably half my age, 
people of your mindset sometimes don't see it that way. It takes time to gain that wisdom. Your dad, I think, has instilled that wisdom mm-hmm. in you, and it's uh, something that does take time to come around, but we need to support that. And you know, the old saying, watch my feet, not my lips. You got to watch what I'm doing, not what I'm saying. And you got to lead by example in that. Yeah. So I, I, I guess... For our listeners who may have been those traditional capitalists, and and they're they're at least curious about about this different way about about doing uh, doing business, and and they do see that there is maybe a bottom line benefit in the in the long run to, to conscious capitalism. If you were in in that kind of company, what what would you do to kind of get started on this kind of cultural evolution journey? Would would there be anything that you'd recommend for folks to to really get started on that path? Get involved in something. Join Rotary. Uh, join a charitable board, get on a committee. And it's funny when you start doing that stuff and you don't do it for these reasons, but hey, you know what? I bought a job from you just because you know, I like working with you on the committee. Or they'll see it. I mean, it's, if if you're not going to convince them that it's right for some reasons, it, hey, if nothing else, if you can appeal to their bottom line, it's just, it's good business. It's good. And it keeps you balanced. It keeps you based. It keeps you equal in your intentions and your goals. And I really think it's the best way to try something is just get involved, join something. As you, as you know, you're involved in everything. I, you know, I see your name everywhere and you probably have seen it for your business. If somebody has an equal opportunity to deal with one business or another, and they know that this business really isn't involved in anything in the community, and they really have never heard of them, but their prices and quality and product and reviews on Google are all the same, and they have a business over here that they have all the same things, but they see that they're volunteering on committees and they're helping out with organizations and they they see them at these things. Who are you going to probably give them the nod to? I know how who I would give it to. Absolutely. I give it to if that doesn't convince somebody that conscious capitalism is a good thing, then I don't know what it would take. And you're not going to hit them any harder over the head than that. If nothing else, just on pure capitalist mentality, give yourself an upper hand. Give yourself a chance to to have something else to talk about. And our salespeople do. They don't do it intentionally. They just they talk about these things when they go in, you know. And and they usually don't have to. They talk about it because the customers bring it up. <laughs> They bring it up, hey, you know, so-and-so is a parishioner at my church or they helped out on a committee or they were at a 5K race or I saw your banner in the outfield at the Bloomfield Little League. You know what? If something as simple as that, and sometimes, you know, if you want to justify it, you can't see it as doing it as charity, okay, rebrand it as marketing. That's what I do. (laughs) You know what? When I run out of my charitable budget... I just do everything as marketing. My marketing team drive drive them nuts because they get to the end. You're like, what happened to our budget? So, eh, I, I sponsored a few things, you know, because they were good to sponsor, and so we put it as marketing. So if somebody out there that doesn't buy into it, all right, just change the name of it. You'll feel a lot better. Just change it as marketing, and you'll see it's uh, those sponsorships and those supports. But be involved too. You got to be there. You can't just just can't give them the treasure. You got to do with the time and the talent. Well, thank you so much for sharing your your time and your talent and your wisdom. I do want to kind of close on one question, though, because I want to look ahead for, for Isaac. You've, you've shared so much of your philosophy and, and the past and what's brought you to, to where you are. And, and I know that we've, we've had other discussions where you're not quite sure whether there's going to be another Isaac taken over in the future. And so, although it's still early, we'll say, but, uh, you know, if you are looking towards, you know, your succession, not that you're, you're going anywhere anytime soon, but what kinds of things are you thinking about to try to maintain that culture 
you know, into the future so, so that that Isaac, whether or not the Isaac name, uh, you know, is still running the company, that that same ethos can, can be running the company. Man, you said, just said it, bingo, right there, maintain the culture. Um, we're not sure. We, the fourth generation has zero interest in coming into the business. Uh, so there's probably some people out there now that want to be adopted, but <laughs> it's, and it's okay. I mean, there's a 4% success rate of third generation businesses and it's for a lot of different reasons, but a lot of it is, comes down to that fourth generation or even the third generation really starts creating a, a lifestyle business. And that's a f- first step to failure right there because it then creates complacency and you think it's just a, an ATM for the, for the family. Um, but we're okay with the fourth generation not wanting to come in because if they weren't passionate about it and they did not have a purpose in the business and want to be there, the business is going to fail real quick and it's going to fail by cultural guidelines and cultural gauges before it fails financially. And you'll see, if you see it, it's that, you know, that outward uh, analysis of a business that is failing and, and dying culturally. And we need to make sure that whoever takes over the business, that they are going to maintain that culture. Yeah, obviously, if somebody buys it, it's their choice to do with it what they want. But we don't have to sell it to that type of person mm-hmm. or, or transfer it to that type of person. Um, I'd love to see our employees buy it. I don't know if they, they would have the means to do it. Uh, but we're going through this right now. It's funny. We just bought the company from my dad and my uncle and my sister two years ago. And it's been a quick turnaround. Now we're already wow. looking at, okay, what's next? And our employees come up and ask that. This isn't just stuff we think about. If you think that you're the only people as owners that are thinking about this, you're mistaken. Your employees are thinking about it because this is their livelihood. This is their life. If somebody's 20-something years old joining Isaac, we have to be able to assure them that, look, you're going to be committed to this company. We need to be committed to you, however that happens. So we need to make sure that we have a good, smooth transition. But I think the worst thing you could do is force a fourth generation to come in if they're not passionate about it and they don't want to be there. And I guess, fortunately, I got one left, a 14-year-old at home who thinks he wants to be a pilot in the Air Force, which is great. Um, fortunately and unfortunately, the fourth generation has no interest, but that's okay. That's all right. We're okay with that. We're okay with that because, you know, we don't want to force somebody in the business that doesn't want to be there. And I'd rather have a 96% success rate of somebody else being there than a four, miserable 4% success rate. Yeah. Well, you've, you've done so much for the, for the community. I, I certainly hope uh, that, that you're, able to find, you're able to find whoever that leader is that's going to continue on that, that Isaac ethos because it means so much. And so thanks so much, Ray, for, for your, sharing your time with us today, but more importantly for sharing your time, talent, and treasure with Rochester and kind of being a, just a real beacon for conscious capitalism in our community. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for the opportunity. This episode is brought to you by Wicked Squid Studios, Rochester, New York's premier podcast development team. The Wicked Squid family brings ideas to life through the art of audio production. From custom jingles and creative services to studio memberships and educational curriculum, their outfit strives to empower all members of society to build a more equal and colorful world. Learn more about their operation at wickedsquidstudios.com.